And I titled the message this week, A Change in Plans. I don't know about you guys, but many times I have plans, and God sees fit. I think He has a sense of humor. He sees my type A-ness, if that's a word. And He says, you know what? I'm going to switch up your plans, because even though your plans are kind of good, they're not my plans, and my plans are better. And His plans always are. But what I find interesting is the Apostle Paul is much like me. I can relate to him. Not because of his unfireness for the Lord, but because he's type A. He has this attitude of, I'm going to press on no matter what, and I'm going to make things happen. So the Lord sees this, and he sees fit to kind of shake his life up a little bit. And as we see that, we begin in the end of chapter 15 last week is where we ended. And we see that last week as Paul and Barnabas had decided... It was time to go back and they were going to check on those churches, those individual people that they had invested in on their first missionary journey. Well, here we find them that this is the beginnings. This is why they went on their second missionary journey. Their goal was to go back to all the people they had visited before and encourage them. But last week we had a problem with that. What happened is Paul and Barnabas that went on the first missionary journey, they got ready to go and they said, we need to go. So Barnabas, being the encouraging man that he was, he said, you know, let's take John Mark with us. And if you'll remember back in a couple of chapters ago, they tried to take John Mark with them on the first journey. But John Mark, about halfway through the journey, once they got back to the mainland, he said, I'm out of here. It doesn't say why. It just says that he went back home and he kind of left him hanging. They didn't just take him as somebody to take with. They had responsibilities they had handed over to him to be a part of for the journey. So if he leaves, all of a sudden they're like one man short on their team. And so Paul was a little aggravated with this and Barnabas said, you know what? We need to give him grace. Let's bring him on the second missionary journey. So they got into a heated debate because of that. So as a result, basically, Paul said, I will not take him. And Barnabas said, we will take him. And so as happens in many arguments that we have as they parted ways. Now, this is not God's heart. God's heart is not that we would argue and then stay apart. He is a God of reconciliation. He wants to take those who are separated by sin from himself primarily, and he wants to be the mediator, to get in the middle of the confrontation and to bring people back together. He shows us this in the fact that his son was our mediator. We had rebelled against, sinned against God, And then he said, you know what? I'm going to send a way to bridge the gap between you and I. We're going to deal with this sin fence that's caused us to be separated. And you'll remember that from the Old Testament in Genesis, where when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They were cast out of the presence of the Lord in the garden, and they were no longer in the presence of God. They had it good. They were in God's presence. They walked with him in the cool of the morning. And when they rejected his one rule, don't partake of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, what they did was they basically, they rejected him. They rebelled against him. And so their sins separated them from him. And from that point on, each one of us is born into that same ungodly, rebellious heritage. And so God sent Jesus to deal with that separation. And so in Paul and Barnabas, we could look at them very easily and go, well, that doesn't reflect the heart of God. Them arguing and then separating and then never really seemingly reconciling. But we'll see later that when Paul's in jail and he's writing some of his last letters, he writes that 
to, they want to reconcile. They, they got over it. They realized that this confrontation was not worthy of them staying separated. But my point is, is that though sometimes we in our conflicts do not reflect the heart of God, that does not mean that God is not greater than us still. Because we saw last week that though they had been separated by their argument, what happened is that they ended up going in two different directions still with the same goal in mind, going back to the churches that they had planted, going back to the individuals who had responded to the gospel to encourage them, keep going. And we saw that as Paul left, he went to the north through Tarsus. He went over to the region of Derb, Lystra, and Iconium. And he took a man by the name of Silas with him. And then Barnabas had taken with him John Mark. That was the whole point of the contention. If you're going to separate on it, you may as well go with it. And so he took John Mark and he sailed to Cyprus and they went back the same way they went on the first journey to encourage those in the island of Cyprus who had believed in Jesus. And so as they had both been separated by this argument, God used it for his glory because he basically multiplied the one group that was sharing the gospel into two groups and multiplied his final work. And so as he did that, they separated, they went two different directions. We don't hear much more about Barnabas and excuse me, John Mark. But we do hear about Paul's journey and the remainder of the book of Acts ends up being the narrative of what's going on with Paul, how God's using Paul, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. And so as he heads north, he ends up in this region of Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. And when he gets there, he meets a man, a young man by the name of Timothy. And Timothy is a man of faith. And he knows this, Paul all of a sudden recognizes it very, very quickly. He notices that Timothy is a man of faith, not only of faith, but faith in Jesus specifically. He notices that he's a brother in Christ, that he's a disciple. He's making very conscious decisions to obey the teaching of the, of the Lord Jesus. And he's been raised, it said, in the scriptures being read to him from his infancy by his grandmother. Last week I called her Eunice, but that's actually his mom's name. His grandmother's name was Lois. Of course, I could be totally messing that up again. You better check on your own, make sure I'm not messing up the facts. But the point is, his grandmother had given him a godly heritage by taking what many people would see as the time to dial it back and kind of sit on their druthers and wait for the end. And what she did was she took that time and she read the scriptures. That's all it says she did. She read the scriptures to her grandchild. And many of us would say, well, that's not much. That's more than any inheritance that you can give the next generation. If they gain the whole world through an inheritance, but they lose their soul, it was all worthless. It's all in vain. And so this woman had invested in Timothy. And what we're going to find out is that Timothy is now going to get invested in by Paul. And Paul's going to make him, basically train him up to be a pastor. And we'll see down the road that he's going to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus in Asia Minor. So that's getting ahead of myself. So we end up with two missionary teams and then Paul meets up with Timothy and then Timothy ends up going along with him, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul and with Silas. And as they go on, we ended last week, Paul had taken Timothy along with him to do what Paul had originally decided to do. Discipleship is not necessarily quitting everything else picking a person and teaching them to walk with the Lord. We, none of us can do that. We all have responsibilities. We have jobs. We have to provide for our families. Many of us 
Even if we don't have a job, we've got responsibilities that we're in charge of. We can't drop everything and train people to walk with the Lord. But what we can do is, as we're doing what God's given us to do, in all of the, what we would call menial tasks, the normal everyday stuff, we can take that time and find the people that God's placed in our lives, we can invest in them. And so Paul's doing that. He's on the same mission, he doesn't quit the mission, but he takes Timothy with him to train him, give him a little on-the-job experience. And so as he does that, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 this week. It says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were fidden, excuse me, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. All these crazy names, I get confused. That's why I put a map up there. We'll get to that. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's the question of direction. Where does Paul and Barnabas, where are they supposed to go next? It seems to me that one of the hardest parts of living a life of faith is that you and I, we're used to reading road signs. And even if we're not used to road signs, now we got our phones with us, our smartphones that make us dumb. I don't remember how to get anywhere now because my phone always tells me what direction to take next. Turn right at the next exit. You know, it gives you every play-by-play direction. But what we miss out on is when we can see what the road signs say and where they say we're supposed to go and we have our own plans in mind, oftentimes we're less likely to ask the Lord, where do you want me to go next? And so Paul's in this crux in his Christian walk just like any of us would be. Do I go where I had planned to go or do I wait upon the Lord? Well, Paul has an idea in his head and so he's gonna go. But it says that as they were going, it says the Spirit did not permit them to go in the direction they decided to go. So I almost picture it like this. Paul's heading in a direction, and as he's going there, one thing or another happens, and he's not able to go there, and so he sees it as, this isn't the Lord's will for me. So he tries going in another direction, and I kind of picture it as a zigzag. Like, I'm going over here, Lord, and he's like, no, you're not. And then he goes, okay, well, I know I'm still supposed to go. That doesn't change God's great commission for us to go into the world and preach the gospel. Paul just happens to be on a mission here. So as he turns, he's like, okay, well, I'll go in this direction. And it says that the Spirit forbidden him to go. So then he's like, okay, now what? And he gets frustrated. Can you imagine? It's like when you're trying to go somewhere and there's all these detours because of road construction. Lord, what in the world? I'm trying to go in this direction. We've got this end result in mind. Why are there so many boundaries from me doing what I feel you've called me to do? And so those instances where we're frustrated and we're not sure why all these uh, roadblocks keep happening, they shouldn't drive us to be frustrated and give up. Paul wasn't giving up. He continued to try. Oftentimes people see people of faith and they go, well, they're just giving up on life and they're just leaving it all up to the Lord. Well, just because God gives us a calling doesn't mean that we don't have to move our feet. And Paul here is moving his feet in the best way he knows how. You ever been in a dark room that you're not 
used to and you can't flip the light on for whatever reason and so you kind of it's you kind of grasp around in the dark making sure you're not going to knock over anything expensive and at the same time that you can get to the restroom you know have you ever stayed at someone's house and you're like i don't know where i'm at but i really got to go to the restroom so you kind of feel around in the dark it seems like that's what paul's doing he's not walking by sight he's walking by faith <clears throat> and so as he's taking steps in different directions it seems like for whatever reason there's these boundaries that come up so let's think about this for a second. How could or why would the Holy Spirit forbid the preaching of the word in Asia? Now remember, we're talking about Asia, but this is this whole region here in the middle it says Pisidia, Cilicia, Lycia. That's Asia Minor. We think of Asia, we think of India, we think of uh, Burma, you think of the Philippines. Um, we think of those regions, but Asia is actually a lot bigger than that and north of it, Russia. But what we see is that Paul, as he's kind of come up here past Iconium and gone to Antioch, it seems that he wanted to go kind of south down to where Ephesus is and Colossae and Perga. He'd already been there. And then see that other one, Thyatira? Well, it seems like he's trying to turn and the Lord keeps saying no. But we don't know how he says no. We just know that for whatever reason... He keeps getting a no when he tries to go those areas. Many people actually surmise that he was becoming sick. And so every time he tried to go to these regions, he got sick. They had to stop and wait for a while. I don't know if that's the case. The scripture doesn't really tell us how the Lord stopped him. It just says the Lord said no. He forbid them to go. And so God's called us to go and share the gospel, right? We know that. At the beginning of Acts, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I'm going to send you the Spirit. The Spirit's going to come upon you, He's going to fill you, and He's going to give you boldness to do what? To, to share Jesus, to go to Jerusalem, whatever your Jerusalem is. Uh, for us, it's the Arcadia Valley. For them, it was Jerusalem, literally. Then to Judea and Samaria, the areas surrounding where you're from. And then to go to the outer reaches of the world. Not all of us are called to go to all those regions, but Paul was. He knew that. When you don't know what you're supposed to do, go back on what you do know you're supposed to do. God had set them apart to go and share the gospel. They knew that. But what they didn't know is specifically where they were supposed to go. So what they did was they started going in a direction and seeing what God would do. So Paul had a heart to blanket the area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as he had that heart, he very systematically kind of started in the first missionary journey he went in a circle. He went from Antioch down to Salamis, down to Paphos. Then he sailed up there to Perga. And then he went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. And then he turned back and he went all the way back. So it makes sense that this time he's going to make a bigger swath. It's kind of like painting. And he takes a little bit more area. Takes a little bit more ground. He's on a battlefield. It's like conquering the land. And so as he does that, he heads to the north, he goes up to Iconium and Antioch, and he's like, let's take a little bit more ground for Jesus. And so as they head, <clears throat> he wants to go to every major city. Why would he go to the major cities? Well, it'd be like us. If you want to go reach the areas of influence, you go to the town with the closest Walmarts. Because those are the areas that people from small towns like us have to go to to get certain things. Not everything, but if we want to get certain things, we've got to go to a big town. It's not anything against small towns. It's just that they have more influence than us. 
And so many of us either head to Walmart in Farmington or Potosi, or some people further south must go to Piedmont. So Paul's basically picking out the towns like that. He's picking out the towns that everyone has to go to for some reason. And as he does that, people like you and I will get affected many times by people that we know in those towns. That's where I came from. I was from Doe Run. I wasn't from Farmington. God used people in Farmington to affect me for Jesus. And now I felt called to leave the big town, come down here. And now I don't know why I ever lived in a big town. It's beautiful down here. You know, people actually wave at you. It's great. But my point is, is that Paul, as he's doing this, he's got a vision and the Lord says, I'm going to change your plans. So he heads up there to Troas. And while he's there, he's frustrated. Perhaps he actually was sick. And he's like, Lord, why are you allowing all these things to happen to me? But it says there that while he was sleeping, he got a vision in the night and a man from Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So he gets a vision, he's hungry, he's frustrated, and the Lord says, now that you've been sitting still for a minute, now I can speak to you. And so Paul gets this vision, he gets direction, and for the first time he's like, okay, then let's go. I'm tired of sitting still. He doesn't sit very long. The Lord gives him a word and they go. So verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis. I'm probably butchering these words, but you guys get the point. He's going across there to a place called Samothrace and then he ends up in Philippi. And from there to Philippi, verse 12, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So Paul and his crew, we'll call them that, they end up in Philippi. They finally have direction. Okay, Lord, there's... I don't know who it is, but I got a vision of a man pleading for me specifically to come and help with what's going on there. And when they arrive there, they get to Philippi, and there's not a welcoming committee. They're not rolling out the red carpet. It's just a plain old town. So many people would get a vision from the Lord, go somewhere and go, well, this is it? This is all you've called me to, Lord? What? It didn't even seem like probably to them that there was even a work of God going on. There were only, well, excuse me, there were less than 10 Jewish men in that town. Why do I say that? Because in every town where there was 10 Jewish men, that was the number, then they would build a synagogue, a place of meeting for the Jews to get together, to read from the Old Testament, and to reason from the scriptures. But in this town, there's not even that. So he goes to where they would customarily, in those towns that didn't have a synagogue, they would meet at the river. They would go down to the river to pray. They wouldn't have anybody leading service. They would just get together as believers. But when they get there, where are the men? Where are the men? They're not there. There's a bunch of ladies meeting. For any culture, this is sad. 
when the men do not lead their families to the Lord, it's, it's a detriment to our society. We hamstring our culture by not as men leading our families to Jesus. It's the worst thing that can happen. And we see it in our society. When men stop leading their families to Jesus, they end up leading their families in other directions. I'm from one of those families. But the Lord was gracious to me. But when they get there, there are faithful women. And praise the Lord for faithful women. We're seeing more faithful women in these last two chapters than we are in any men. Because we see that Eunice had an impact on Timothy. Lois had an impact on Timothy. Where was Timothy's dad? Well, he was a Greek man. He was a non-believer. That didn't stop Timothy from becoming a man of faith. And now they get to this area that God sent them to, to build up the church. And what do they find? They find a group of women. Praise the Lord for women who are faithful to the Lord. They will make more of an impact than anything that I'll say up here on a Sunday morning. Because they're the ones with their kids all the time. So as they get there, they find this group of ladies and they start talking with them. No doubt having fresh on their mind what the Lord has just done. Can you imagine? Anytime you end up in, a, in any town, let alone a small town, what happens? How'd you guys end up here? How'd you end up in small town Missouri? People ask me that. I was from Chicago. Now, I was only five. My parents were from Chicago. I'm kind of a transplant. I consider being from here. But you end up in a small town and people start asking questions. What are you doing here? How'd you end up here? Do you have family down here? No, I just like it down here. When I got ready to move down to Arcadia Valley, one of my coworkers, who I now live right next to, said, why are you moving down to Arcadia Valley? There's nothing down here. I said, there's people everywhere. Because, of course, we have a different, people have a different value system than I do. I don't see necessarily the stuff to do, but I see the people that are here. And I, I love the people here. So <clears throat> they're asking them, how'd you end up down here in Philippi? And so, at least that's my assertion. And they're telling, this is how God brought us here. It was through frustration. It was through lack of direction. It was through every little thing that could happen. And here we are, and we feel like God's called us here. And we got somebody, a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is that region, asking to come help. Who is that? You guys know this man from Macedonia? Of course, they're all sitting there going, I don't know what you're talking about. Because God gave him the vision. But while they are talking, just having an everyday conversation, what happens is verse 14. It says, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Anytime you talk about the Lord with a person, recognize there are other ears listening. And many times what you have to say, God might give you something to say. Keep in mind that there might be other people around that it's actually for. So keep and guard your conversations. Make sure that they're holy conversations that are worthy of the Lord's blood. Be sure that you honor the Lord with your lips at all times because you don't know who's listening. But it says there in verse 14, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Remember, I pointed out Thyatira over here in Asia Minor. Paul's heart was to go there. And the Lord said, I want to send you there, but I'm not going to send you. I'm going to send Lydia. I'm going to send you to Lydia, a woman who is from their people, and I'm going to use you to impact her, and it'll make much greater of an impact in Asia Minor than if you went yourself. How cool is that? So, <clears throat> she was a, what do we know about Lydia? It says there that she was a seller of purple. 
It says there she was from Thyatira. It says there that she was a worshiper of God. It doesn't say that. I guess it does say that, but we know that more than from what it says. We know that because she was gathering with other believers on a Sunday morning. And then it says that she was a woman, in my mind, it says that she's a woman who desires to hear from God. Because there she is. There's no service. There's nobody teaching. There's no worship. They're all together doing what? Praying. They're at the river praying. But I think this is more important than we need to realize because if you realize this, she's a businesswoman. She's a profitable businesswoman because she's traveling to sell this purple. Now, we might not think of anything of that, but in order to make this purple dye that she was selling, it came from the region of Thyatira, and they had to use, I can't remember this, a bug or some sort of plant. It was very costly. In order to dye like 10 pounds of cotton would cost like $100. It's expensive just to make your clothing a certain color. So purple was not necessarily just for team seniors. It was, this was royalty's clothes, you know, and maybe that's why somebody picked it out down the road. I don't know. But <clears throat> purple was a very important thing. I actually wore this this morning, not even thinking about it. I just got out my sweater because I was cold. But uh, consider this, a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman, far from home, she sells an expensive commodity, purple dye, and she's a successful businesswoman who takes time out of her week to worship who? God. And even though in order to go to the church, there's no air conditioning, there's no heat, she's going to go down to the river, old-timey style. She's going to meet with a bunch of other ladies, and they're going to get together and pray. I wonder if God knew that there was only ladies there Knowing Paul's heart, being a Jewish man, having those tendencies to be willing to go if a man asks, but not so much if a woman asks. He gave him the vision of a man of Macedonia. Perhaps he was actually showing him what the lady from Macedonia was praying. Revealing to him, hey, there's a need, and this is where I want you to go. So Paul goes, and he's blessed because he gets to meet this lady. So at first glance, there's no work of God going on in this town. There's no synagogue. There's no men gathering to, to worship. But at second glance, if you look a little deeper, in the heart of this town, there's a group of ladies praying for God to move and to shine his light and to speak to them in a very specific way. And because of these praying ladies, God sends Paul and Silas and Timothy, and we know Luke also because it says there, in verse 10, after he had seen the vision, immediately, for the first time, it says, we sought to go to Macedonia. Remember who's writing the book of Luke? Excuse me, Acts. <laughs> Give it away. It's Luke. Luke is there. He's with them. He's no longer writing from what someone's telling them. He's with them. And many people surmise it's because of Paul getting stoned nearly to death, that he had some physical problems afterwards. So if he's going to travel, he's going to take a doctor with him. And so Luke is a doctor. He takes him with him. But it says there in verse 15, I don't think I finished verse 14. Let's go ahead and read that one one more time. It says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed. Remember that word means to lean in and to take hold of, to listen intently to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, 
saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So she received the testimony of Jesus Christ. She learned of it. She responded to the gospel. And as her first act of obedience, she said, I want to be baptized. I want to take that. I want to recognize that this whole town that I'm yours now, Lord. Not Paul, not Silas, not Timothy. I'm the Lord's. And I'm going to show this because we're right by a river. Let's make this happen. And so he does that. She does that. She takes that step of faith. And notice that her whole household was saved because of her faith. I want to make a distinction here, though. She didn't, her whole household didn't get baptized just because their mom did or their grandma. The whole household that she had believed because of her testimony. They were convinced also that Jesus Christ was the Lord and he's the only one able to forgive them and deal with their sins. So the idea of I'm saved because my grandma was is completely bunk. It's not biblical at all. We are saved by our own profession of faith by our own words, by our own baptism. And baptism doesn't save, it's just an outward sign of showing that I'm the Lord's now. I've died to my sins, my past life, it's no longer there. I've been raised up in the resurrection. I now live by faith in the Son of God. And our works, our words, our lives, the fruit from our lives should show that. So it's something to consider. And it's obvious because Lydia, because of everything that happened after her profession of faith, it led others to faith, and it started in her own home. So it says that if she's, she said to them, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, me being a Gentile, prove that you really believe I'm saved by coming and being at my house. Let me exercise hospitality. I want to feed you. I want to give you a place to stay. And as a group of guys, they were persuaded because who turns down free food and a place to stay? Raise your hand, guys. No, nobody. Okay, that's what I thought. You know, it doesn't just happen in college. You know, somebody offers you a meal, you take advantage of that. And these guys are weary travelers, and so who's not going to let you bless somebody with a nice meal? So verse 16. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. She brought her master's much profit by fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Verse 18 says, But Paul was greatly annoyed, and he turned and said to the spirit that was in her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, notice that, when they saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And was that the case? No. They took them, they said, Hey, you need to punish these guys because they're, they're messing with our culture. But what they were really saying was, We don't like what they're doing because they've taken this woman who we used as a means to gain money and they've taken away her gift in their mind. But what we know is that she was possessed by a demon, and that's why she was able to proclaim the things that she did. They used her as a fortune teller. She had one of those little shops with the, the hand on the front glowing, you know, as, as if she could tell the future. 
But what we need to know is that she was possessed. It was something that was holding her captive and keeping her from having a life of freedom in Christ. And so Paul was annoyed, even though what she was saying was true. She was saying, these men are the servant of the God Most High. They come to proclaim to you the, the way of salvation through the Lord. Was that true? Yes. But not all, you don't need everyone's press. Bad press is just that, bad press. They didn't need somebody telling them that. They, they were telling them that. And they wanted this lady to be set free, to be taken, you know, no longer taken advantage of and used for profit. They wanted her to be able to worship the Lord because that's what every human being has been created to do. To give glory to God, to enjoy His presence in your life now and to enjoy Him for eternity. Everything that we do in our lives should actually lead to that end result. Are the things in your life, the things that take you captive, the things that you put your money and your time and your investment into, we need to put them through the grid of this. Are these things preparing me to enjoy the Lord here? Are they encouraging that? And are they preparing me to enjoy Him for eternity? Because that's what you and I were created for. That's what He had in mind when He made Adam and Eve. And so <clears throat> this is not what was happening in her life. And because of that, Paul set her free. And because of that, he's going to be thrown in jail. From setting somebody free from a demon, he's going to be thrown in jail. It says, <clears throat> verse 20, verse 20, that they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. And then the multitude, they rose up together against Paul and his crew, and the magistrates tore their clothes off, being Paul's and their group's clothes, and they commanded them to be beaten with rods. That was the correction, that punishment. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Laying stripes on them was like they would take the whips, and they would take these rods and beat them, and it would leave stripes of whelps. And sometimes bloody holes and, and gashes. And it's the same word that's used in Isaiah 53 to describe the beating that Jesus took. It says, by his stripes, by his punishment, by his chastisement, by his stripes were healed. And so that punishment that they're receiving, they're, they don't look at it as, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. But they're counting it joy to suffer for the name and the cause of Christ. And so then the multitude rose up together against them and they did this. Verse 23 is, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. I find this interesting because they weren't armed. They weren't even known for being notorious, but they put them to maximum security prison. Verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison, all the way in the center, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. They weren't just in jail, but they were tied down. Verse 25, but at midnight, look how they respond to this position that being obedient to the Lord has brought them into a place of being thrown in jail. No longer are they just frustrated because they don't know where to go, but now their plans are being changed because it's the will of God for them not only to suffer, but to be put in prison. They set people free, the world puts them captive. And that happens all over the world to Christians. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. 
When you're in the middle of a trial, when God's, it seems like the circumstances God's allowed into your life have caused you to be captive to your situation, you can still praise the Lord. And when you praise the Lord instead of complaining, there will be those that are listening. And what we find here is that there are those listening that are prisoners. And these people were no doubt not good people being charged for good things. They were prisoners that were deserved to be there. Verse 26 says, As they were praising God, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors were wide open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to take his own life and about to kill himself. Verse 28 says, But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. You see, the the guy, the jailer was going to take his own life because in that society, if you were a jailer or a guard and some prisoner had been put in your care and you let them get free, you would get their punishment. You would be charged with their crime and punished with what they were going to receive. I don't know if they just didn't want to go through with the paperwork to just stop the, the punishment or if they just, you know, they wanted to make sure that their jailers were not in any way corrupt. They wanted to make sure that they had good jailers. You know, what does it mean if I fail at my job? I lose my life. They wanted to be serious about their jobs. And so we see there, Paul cries out, knowing that this is about to take place. Don't harm yourself. We're all in here. So then he called for a light and he ran in. He's going to see if this is actually true or not. He ran in, <clears throat> fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Whatever it is that you guys have, I want it. Because I saw you get beaten. I know you're still bleeding and scabbing up. But you guys have been singing praise songs to your God all night long. How can you praise a God that would allow that in your life? Something's different about you guys that I've never seen before. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Didn't go into a long theological debate. Didn't get long-winded like I typically am and I do today. What he did was believe on the, the Lord Jesus Christ and him only and you'll be saved. And your household. Again, he's not saying that if you believe, then your whole household is saved. What he's saying is if you believe... If you walk in the testimony of the Lord, if you trust Him with your ways, you follow Him, you pick up your cross and you obey what He's taught. As a result of a faithful life, people, your family's going to see that and they're going to be saved too. That's what He does. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to Him and to all who were in His house. And He took them the same hour of the night. They left the jail, took them to their home, and washed their stripes. I find this interesting because no doubt that jailer knew the people or was one of the ones that had actually given them the wounds. They beat them with the rod of correction. And at the same time, once he's saved, once he has a right relationship with God, look at what happens. He's washing the very wounds that he likely had caused. When we have a right relationship with God, God makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. 
Reconciliation, remember? He, brings, he breaks down that middle wall of separation. He brings us together with those that are our enemies. That's his desire. It doesn't always happen right away, and it doesn't always happen. But that's his heart. So it says, He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So Paul, his best laid plans, completely blown out of the water, broken up and changed into God's plans. And as God's plans are set forth, look at the snowball effect that happens in today's reading. Paul surrenders. He surrendered to the Lord on the way to Damascus when the Lord knocked him down and made him blind. The Lord said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you against my people? And the Lord changed his heart. He humbled him. But notice that Paul, down the road, still growing in his faith, the Lord still has to bring him to his knees. And, the, and Paul is still learning. Every day I have to surrender to God's plans and lay aside mine. And notice the result of that. Paul goes to Macedonia. He meets people in an unlikely situation. He has an impact on Lydia, who's going to go back to Thyatira. He goes to jail for setting a woman free who was demon-possessed. And while he's in that prison, while he's trusting the Lord, while he's doing something he did not plan on, I guarantee it, and he's taking a beating and he's worshiping God anyway, what happens is he leads this jailer, this Greek jailer, to the Lord, and as he believes and his whole family believes, and because of that, the gospel is now in what we would call modern-day Europe. Many of us would find our lineage there. The gospel goes for the first time into Europe, and it starts with a Philippian jailer, a man who is not a good guy. But God's plans are always better than ours. But we have to learn to surrender to his plans each and every day, even when it seems like his plans have led us to a prison, even when it means our obedience might put us in a hard place. God desires to use it. Let me ask you, how are you doing in surrendering surrendering? every day to the Lord, every one of your situations, good, bad, otherwise. If you will learn to be blessed in every situation, to be thankful in all things, your life can look just like the Apostle Paul. There is nothing great about the Apostle Paul. He's just a, a guy like you and I. He's just a, a normal, everyday human being that had been changed by the Lord so dramatically that his life had changed, and the result of it was many people were led to Jesus. Not Paul. They weren't led to Paul. They were led to Jesus. How are you doing in that? As we take communion this morning, I know I went a little over, but I want us to consider how are you doing in your everyday surrender to the Lord? And for those of you that might be in here that haven't surrendered your life to the Lord, how are you doing in that? Will you just give up and let Him use your life? It's going to be hard whether you surrender it to Him or not. You may as well be able to enjoy eternity afterward. So the group and I are going to sing a song of praise. The kids are probably going to come out and be all kinds of noisy. Uh, that's okay. Um, I would say that if you know the Lord and you have a relationship with Him, take communion. If you don't, get right with Him first. Come up and pray with me after service. Let's, let's begin with the beginning surrender before we go on to the next, and then we'll take communion afterwards. But... After that, we're going to sing another song. But while we're singing the first song, I want you to come up, get the elements. We'll take communion together. I'll lead you through it. And then afterwards, we'll, we'll end in a song. So.